0: This be a surprise to you as well, Mike. Uh, I'm not in Proverbs today. I did tell Mike Thomas. Uh, I'm not in Proverbs today. No, yeah, I did tell Mike Thomas. This represents something of just like a split. Yeah, no, that's fine, that's fine. Um, yeah, so this is a bit of a break, I guess, in your series in Proverbs. Um, I know it did say it on Instagram as well. I did see that. Uh, but yeah, I did tell him. Um, so yeah, this is something of a break. It's not going to be as, as meaty as the Proverbs series I have heard a little bit of it just through podcasts. It's been great. Um, but it's just a little bit of a break and it's just primarily an encouragement to the church. Uh, and it's the way that I, I came about the introduction is really interesting. So a little bit about me. Um, I spent three days of my week leading marketing department for a company and then two days of my week uh, doing master's research. Uh, and so during my master's research, I came across this story. Um, and it's the story of a nightingale bird. Um, I don't know if anyone's heard of Beatrice Harrison. It's fine if you haven't. I hadn't either, although she's quite a famous celloist for her generation. Uh, so it's around the 1920s. And she lived in Surrey, uh, so just obviously east of England, really. Um, and she was outside playing her cello, just practicing. And it was in springtime. I don't know if you know anything about nightingales; girls. They migrate to England during springtime. Uh, and their song is like a really beautiful, melodious thing. It says They're the unrivaled songbird, because they have... Like two hundred different phrases, they sing to. Basically, she was outside playing on her cello um, and just practicing because she was she was quite renowned, so she, was, she had to spend a lot of her time practicing uh, for like concertos and stuff. And so uh, she found that the nightingale actually began to sing along with her with her music and sing along with her cello. Um, and so she was quite shocked. And so the next day she came back outside and she did it. And so day after day, as she was playing her cello, these nightingale birds would sing along with the music. Um, And so, because she was quite renowned, she knew the people high up in the BBC. And so, spoke with the the director of the BBC, Lord Wright, And said, I really want you to put these guys live on radio. She's like, there's this really beautiful thing happening. She's like, I want to do a duet with these nightingale birds. Um, And so, it, it represented something of a shift for the BBC. They'd never done a live outside radio broadcast before this moment. And so, she managed to convince them. And so, the next year, spring 1924... Uh, the, the BBC crew would go and do tests and she would play and it would be fine. And so it happened. The next day, they, they broke from uh, the tradition. They usually uh, had like, live symphonies from the Royal Opera House or whatever. Um, but for the first time in BBC history, they, they played this, uh, this duet uh, live on radio between uh, Beatrice Harrison and these nightingales. And so much so that like, it became a tradition for 12 years straight... That every springtime, they would play at the start of spring. Beatrice Harrison would play outside in her garden. And they had something like 50,000 uh, like fan mail um, just through Beatrice Harrison's door in Surrey, just saying they loved it. They loved the sound of this thing. It's, it was something euphoric for the nation, um, that they they could hear the song, a duet, this beautiful thing. And so what happens in 1942 is... Uh, what becomes iconic about this story. So up until this point, it's tradition, and they do it every year. And then there's something happens in 1942, which becomes the basis for my preach, uh, that shifts it and shifts it. So history then remembers this moment uh, rather than the, the 12 years period uh, uh, previous to this. And basically, the Sound engineers, uh, engineers go as normal. Um, but at this point, Beatrice Harrison has moved from her house, but they still go to an old house. And, and just record the nightingales on their own, because they love the sound, the sound of it. Um, and so they go, and little did they know, so it's obviously in the middle of World War II, um, that one of the biggest bombings of Mannheim in Germany is about to happen, and so 197 bombers are heading from the RAF base over Surrey, over uh, the English Channel, and uh, across over to Germany. Um, so what you hear in this six-minute recording, I haven't got the six-minute recording, so I'll just describe it, The first two minutes, you just hear the nightingale singing really beautifully, just this melodious thing. Um, And then three minutes strikes and you start hearing the drone of war coming. And so whilst you have the beauty of the nightingale, you have the drone of war beginning to come and it gets louder and louder and louder. And so all you can hear is two things. The nightingale singing melodies and then side by side, simultaneously the sound of war coming overhead. And it's like, it's a drone, it's massive, it's drowning out the sound. So they have to cut the production because they realise that the, the German army may have people listening and so they may realise that these people are coming. But they've still got the recording. And so what we've got is something that becomes iconic in history. And it's iconic because it's a combination of war and peace simultaneously. It becomes iconic because it was this moment in history that's cemented as being representative of what happens when... Uh, the storms of life come simultaneously with the beauty of, of singing and the beauty of the melody of the nightingale. And so I was really wrestling with this. It was just like this really beautiful thing that I read through. Um, and I was really wrestling with this and just saying, God, like, this, this feels like prophetic. This feels like something. What is it about, about the singing and what is it about worship in a Christian life whilst storms are raging, whilst things are hitting us, that becomes iconic to the people around us And cements in people around us the understanding that our song is not a song of our freedom, but it's the song of God's victory and song of Christ's victory. And so what happens when in churches collectively and in our lives, those storms rage, those things hit us that is unexpected, we continue to sing... Of God's victory. And we continue to sing of his song. And so something else about the nightingale. It's really an insignificant bird. Like the size of it is about five inches. So it's less than a half a subway. But. It's a hundred decibels when it sings. And so our ears can hear around 85 decibels comfortably. Um, and you can be in like 80. So your, your headphones shouldn't really go above that. But if you were stood next to a nightingale when it was singing. It would be as if a full-on truck was consistently going past your house or something with the noise and the sound of it, and so you couldn't actually sit right next to one for very long. So it's incredible. I was like, something so insignificant and so small creates such a sound that creates this iconic turning point in history. So it's like, what does this mean? So I looked at the Psalms, because the Psalm is obviously a songbook. I mean, uh, it's composed of sacred songs or sacred poems that are meant to be sung. Some Jewish literature uses the title uh, Tehillim, which means songs of praise. And so they are directly songs of praise. And in times of trouble, traditional Jewish communities have turned to the recitation of Psalms, often the entire book, as a prayerful response. Even now, in some circles, the family and community of someone facing a grave illness may ask for Psalms to be recited as a collective prayer for the sick person's health and recovery. And there's many authors in the Psalms. We focus in on David's Psalms next, right? Some of the focuses as well. There's lament in the Psalms. There's confidence in God in the Psalms. There's thanksgiving. There's songs uh, praising God for his work in Israel. There's songs of forgiveness. There's songs of wonder. It is broad. The songs that we sing aren't just when everything's amazing. We sing when things are hard as well, when we are lamenting as well. And so we see that David cried out. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It was despite what he was suffering, not because he was being flooded with blessings in this moment in the Psalms. He was resolved no matter what came, no matter how hard life got, no matter who betrayed him or assaulted him, I will bless the Lord at all times. And so we see an overview through the Psalms of what it says as well. So David was an insignificant shepherd to start with, who then slays Goliath, But then comes back and Saul, the king, is jealous of him. And so he has to run as a fugitive from Saul. So he runs away. He fakes insanity in the next kingdom that he finds himself to flee death. He then becomes king back in Israel. Rules all of Israel. Establishes a kingdom. And then has a moment of unfaithfulness where he sleeps with Bathsheba and has her husband murdered. finds forgiveness in God. Then faithfully serves the country. And eventually dies. David wasn't... A person his his songs of worship to God wasn't just because life was amazing consistently. We see from beginning to end that life was normal for David. Even though he was the king of an entire empire, we find that his confidence was grounded in who God was. And so that's the main focal point of, of this sermon is is from Psalm twenty seven. Where it calls us to dwell in the presence of God. This person, this king who had absolutely everything, an entire empire, was grounded in his faith in who God was. And so if you to, if you turn to Psalm twenty seven, um, and we will flip through a few of them. Um, so I'm going to start with verse four and five, um, just because we are only we are short on time. So verse four, there's one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me upon a high rock. What does this mean? What does this for me? The unhindered place of worship was the house of God for the Israeli people. It was unhindered. It was them and God. There was nothing else. And he resolves that the best gift is to be in the presence of God all the days of our life, to see his beauty and to seek him. The king who had everything resolved that he wanted to seek the beauty of his king and be in his presence. So God's beauty is what the faithful desire, God himself. Not the gifts, but the giver. And so we go on to verse 13 and 14. This has been something of, of great like, triumph for me recently because the, the droning of the war in, in the Nightingale song is something that I've experienced in, period, like in the past few months. It's been quite a, a turmoil like life recently. has just been a bit crazy for me. It's been a crazy period of time. But I know the faithfulness of God and, and I cling to the Psalms because they are songs of triumph. Though there's despair. And so, yeah, verse 13 says, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. He calls us to confidence in God. Not confidence in our surroundings, not confidence in what we have in our hands, but confidence in God. We're confident because of verses 1 to 3. And so verses one says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Why are we confident? Because the Lord is our light and our salvation. We have our confidence in the victory of Jesus. And so the song that we sing, as I said at the start, the song isn't confidence in ourselves. It's confidence in the finished work and the the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we can sing, though our situation doesn't merit it. And so, what we see in uh, so verse thirteen again is just the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What does that mean? Well, some would say that uh, the goodness of the Lord is His gracious character for His people. And so, we seek the grace of our God. It is only by grace that we enter the the throne room of God. We seek His grace. Today, his promises today. And where do we find those? Throughout scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is the narrative of how God seeks the presence of his people and how the people of God seek the presence of their God and how that relationship is what we were created for. And so just if I flip back to, uh, yeah, just to my notes. So first, we seek the presence of the Lord. We find that though Paul was shipwrecked, Though he was bitten by a snake, though Peter uh, would die for his faith, though, though James would face trials, and Jesus himself would go to the cross for us. The confidence and the joy that they experienced was in the dwelling place of God, was being near to God. And they resolved that being near to God and in his presence was a greater wealth than silver and gold. And it says also in the Psalms, though some trust in chariots, some trust in gold, but we trust in the name of our Lord. And so that is where our confidence is found, in the name of our God. In the presence of our God, things are made whole. And so what we see as well, uh, just listing off some of the things that we find in the presence of God. Psalm 16 says that we find fullness of joy. Psalm 34 says we find healing in the presence of God. Psalm 23 says we find the goodness and mercy of God in his presence. Psalm 42 says we find hope in his presence. Psalm 23 says we find comfort in his presence. Psalm 51 says we find forgiveness. It is only because of Jesus that we have our confidence to sin. And so just furthering on to, to the next part. So it says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. He said to me, my grace... Is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Well, I acknowledge that, um, that we can, I guess, be a bit nervous about uh the things of life, and that that's that's okay, the stuff that hits us that is unexpected. Uh, the things that we find hard about our surroundings, when, when there are financial troubles, when there are just unexpected family situations or bereavements, we are allowed to be tearful and we find that in Psalms. The closeness to God isn't based on, uh, on us being in a good scenario, but it is through all things that we come to our Saviour. And so we find that David does cry and lament and just asks where his God is, yet always resolves that he's near him. Um, and so, yeah, Paul, further on, just seeing that this is a narrative from Genesis through to Revelation, Paul in Corinthians says, actually, it's, it's in our weaknesses that we're able to boast. Because when God shows up and we're in our weakest moments, that's when we can boast all the more. Because it's Christ's power in us that gives us the confidence. So not only is it not confidence in ourselves, it is not even our own confidence, it is Christ's confidence. It is the Holy Spirit work in believers that they might be strong, though they seem weak. And then again, I, it just uh, Jesus promises to leave his uh, Holy Spirit for his people as well. And so he has called us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is a beautiful thing for the believer. Because when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the temple that, uh, that David wants to dwell in, Becomes like us, like the temple of the Holy Spirit is where we are, and so the presence of God is always where we are. And so we are to seek the presence of God in all places, in our work scenarios, in our tough family scenarios, in any places, in our brushing of our teeth in the morning. We can be near our God, we can be near our Savior because He is victorious, because His finished work enabled us to be back in communion. With him, That's why communion is a beautiful thing. It's remembering the fellowship. It's remembering the sacrifice that we might be united as believers with our Savior. Um, and so Hebrews 4.16. This is why we can draw near to God. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We find grace and mercy when we come to Jesus. What is grace? It is unmerited favor. One ounce of grace is too much for the undeserved people. Just one ounce. Yet it says that we are filled every day with grace. There is grace that is sufficient for every day. And I'm blown away by that. I was blown away recently because I was kind of... There's there's psalms that call us to rejoice every day. There's psalms that... Uh, Yeah, just call us to, uh, to be glad, to wake up and be glad because we're given something new. And it's literally every breath that leaves our body is the grace of God that we might be given it. Every single breath. It's not like there's a certain amount that you get given and then anything on top of that is grace. It is only by grace. And so it's only by grace that we enter the throne room of God. It's only by grace that... The, uh, the, the parable of the prodigal son, that the son would be allowed and be, would come back, though he seemed dirty, would be lavished with love, would be lavished with, uh, with the robes of righteousness, with the rings that signified him as a son again. It was only out of grace. It was totally undeserved. And so we're to respond. And we're actually wrapping up here, so we will finish on time. Just kids. Um, so, how are we to respond? We are to actively set our minds on Jesus. So 1 chronicle says, now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. There's verses that call our lives to be an offering, to seek him in all things. And we're called to be fragrant offerings of worship to God. It can happen through prayer, through fellowship, through generous living. And as David said, God himself is our reward. When we have him, we have Everything. Therefore, seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. That's, that's Psalm 105 verse 4. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. We will never sing in the storms of life if our confidence is founded in our own gifts and our own talents. in what we can bring to the table in and what, in what we're good at or in anything that comes from us firstly. We will never, ever be able to sing because the storms of life will wash it away. The foundations aren't solid enough. They're not deep enough and they just get blown away. We'll only be able to sing as the nightingale did with the drones and the storms of life raging. We'll only be able to sing if our confidence is found in seeking the face and the presence of the Lord Jesus himself and being thankful for his victory. And so our song then being his victory song. Because we sing his victory. That will transform the world. That's when our worship will be iconic. That's when our worship will be transformative. When our worship is founded in our confidence in our Savior. When our worship is founded in God the Creator. When our worship is founded in the one who gives grace and lavishes it. When we find ourselves coming to the throne of God, when we come and find ourselves before Him, it is purely by grace that we enter. And so we sing in response to our Saviour. And I was just reminded, so just to finish with, um, I presume you sing the song Raise the Hallelujah here. Yeah. Sometimes. Okay, it's cool. I've got the story here anyway, to, just a remind. Um, so it was, it was a song that came out actually last January. Um, and the story behind the song, so was Bethel music, the story behind the song um, goes that uh, the, the worship directors for Bethel uh, Church, uh, their kids had... Uh, what they thought was just a normal child's illness. Um, they soon discovered that his kidneys were shutting down. Uh, he's a two-year-old son. That's quite a big thing if your two-year-old son's kidneys are shutting down. That's an absolute nightmare. And so soon after, uh, they went to the hospital and they uh, sent prayer requests everywhere. And suddenly like the world was praying. This is quite a large church and so they got quite a large stretch. So the world was praying for this son. And so the helses who are worship leaders in the church, as they were praying for Jackson, they said a new song came out of their souls. All of a sudden, their guts released this song. And this song came in the face of the giant. So I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief. This song became an anthem for the tailors throughout the rest of the battle over Jackson's life. They made worship their weapon. That is huge. When we're able to worship, though the devil is raging against us, though the the tides of life seem like they're just lashing waves of doubt and uncertainty against us. When we weaponize worship and we say, no, we're standing firm in the truth of what the Bible says. We're standing firm in who God is. Then we'll be able to sing through those storms and it will be iconic to the world. The world will take notice when the worshippers of God... Worship though it makes no sense, though their situation doesn't merit it, but their confidence is founded in Christ. So I just finished with the words from that song. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief. I raise a hallelujah. My weapon is a melody. I raise a hallelujah. Heaven comes to fight for me. So I'm gonna say. in the middle of the storm, louder and louder. You're gonna hear my praises roar. Up from the ashes. Hope will arise, for death is defeated and the King is alive. So let me just pray. Yeah, Father, our song is your victory. Our freedom is founded in you and our confidence is founded in you, Lord Jesus. It is throughout the Bible that we see that we are to seek your presence, that in your presence we are made whole, in your presence we are healed. In your presence, we're restored. In your presence, we're found forgiven. In your presence, we are made sons and daughters. And we have to live lives of your presence. And for that to be the anthem of the Christian, we worship the God who saves. We worship the God who cares. We worship the God who heals. And though our situations don't merit it, we worship anyway because we know your goodness and we believe that we will see your grace in our day. So, Father, we just leave this in your hands Just say, would we be people who seek you through prayer, through generosity, through uh, forgiving others when it doesn't make sense, uh, through worship, through our lives, just being an anthem, Lord Jesus? And would we see that the world would stop and see that the worship of Christians, when it doesn't make sense, is iconic because... Our confidence is founded in you and not in ourselves, but in your victory, Lord Jesus. So we thank you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. And we just leave our situations in your hand, Lord Jesus. We see our our situations don't get easier. It may not be easy to walk through it. But we know that our confidence isn't in ourselves. And so that's why we remain confident. Because one day you will come back, Lord Jesus. Every knee will bow And on that day, it will be a glorious and triumphant day. And so we wait for that day, Lord Jesus, with eager expectation. But until that day, make us confident in your victory. In your name. Amen.